All right, so we're bringing another cool episode from a dude that has just got a lot going on. Uh, Dr. Serena Namdari, he's a shoulder specialist down at Rothman. I mean, I, I don't even know how this guy does it all. He's amazing. He's only 10 years out. The dude's actually already written his own full textbook. I mean, not a chapter. I'm like literally the entire book. He's uh, a part of the Rothman o Opioid Foundation. He's writing papers left and right. He's got an amazing reputation uh, nationally and internationally as a rising star in shoulder but he's also beloved by his orthopedic residents and fellows as well. He's got it all going on. It's a great episode. We have a lot of similarities. I really enjoyed talking to him. It's a great story. Hope you enjoyed as much as I did. We continue to thank our sponsor, OrthoLaser Orthopedic Laser Centers. They continue to offer MLS M8 technology for chronic and acute orthopedic pain as an alternative source to opioids and possibly even avoiding surgery. The franchises continue to spread across the country. It's an amazing opportunity for orthopedic surgeons and doctors and even medical device reps to become part of the growing technology. OrthoLaser Milwaukee and OrthoLaser Rochester just opened. We have another five in the queue. Come and join the OrthoLaser franchise family. Hashtag follow the fro. Hello, world. Dr. Scott Sigmund, your favorite opioid-sparing orthopedic surgeon here for another episode of the Ortho Show podcast, where we bring you the best of the best in the orthopedic space. Today, we have a great guest. I'm super excited. We have so much to talk about. Dr. Serena Namdari, who is a shoulder and elbow specialist at the Rothman Clinic. He's an associate professor of orthopedic surgery at Jefferson Medical College, the fellowship director for shoulder and elbow at Rothman, as well as the director of shoulder and elbow research at Rothman as well. And I have the perfect name for this episode. We're going to call this the rising star of shoulder. Welcome, Serena. So happy to have you on. Scott, thanks so much. And thanks for your kind words. I've been listening to a lot of your podcasts. I've seen a lot of, you know, my people I admire on it, Paul Sethi, Chris Dodson, you know, and it's, it's really gaining momentum. I think it's really awesome. Yeah, no, it's really exciting. We're we're really just generally now it's been organic growth and every day now we get more DMs on LinkedIn and people are really listening and we have a great audience. It's not just orthopedic surgeons, but it's all people within the whole orthopedic world. So that's very kind of you and we're thrilled. Rothman's going to have a little bit of a run here. We have Asif Ilsa coming up too and we got a few others. So uh, we're really, really, really happy to have you on. It's great. So let's talk, I mean, um, something that's super important to all of us as healthcare practitioners. How are you guys doing with the vaccine? Is it rolling out okay? Yeah, it's rolling out okay. Right now, um, you know, we're a private practice. So for us, we've been getting the vaccine through our hospital partners. Uh, for me, through Jefferson Hospital, because I take call there. So um, most of our providers um, have now been vaccinated, at least the first dose. So we're looking forward to the second dose and then hopefully a rollout into the community soon. How about you guys? Yeah, we're good. I just got my second dose on Friday. Uh, everything's been good, good. Oh, no, I'm just kidding. Everything's <laughs> I had a little twitch there, but no, everything's going fantastic. Uh, I've had no pain whatsoever. All of our nurses and doctors in our local community, again, I'm in private practice too, but because we're at the hospital, they threw us in. They actually even did our staff at, at our office as well, which is fantastic. So yeah, we're good. Uh, I don't know of anybody that's had a problem as far as any kind of a secondary effect. And uh, 
you know, as healthcare practitioners and we're in, in the front lines of this stuff, not so much in the sports medicine world, but still we do go to the hospital where we care for patients. It's nice to, to sort of lead in this regard and, and let people know that uh, we feel this is safe and effective and it's a way to get us moving. So glad to hear that Philadelphia is going uh, as well, too. So let's start with uh, something I think that's near and dear to you, um, and that is uh, education. I can see that uh, you you. Uh, won the John J. Garland Award, which is to the faculty member for recognition of outstanding commitment to uh, resident education. So the residents love you. You're you're also you know in charge of the fellowship for shoulder and elbow as well. So that's got to be a great passion for you about being able to pass it down and, and move forwards. What what are you doing there? Yeah, I mean, I I really think it's the best way that I can make an impact. I mean, I think you know the research that we do is great. Taking care of our our patients is great, but in terms of impact to society and our field as a whole. I think education is probably the biggest way that we can impact it, you know, by training a resident and then a fellow, they go on and influence their patients and their communities um, in other places. And so, you know, I think carrying those lessons that they learn from us out into their own practices, that's the best impact we can have. And then I think it's just a lot of fun. You know, the, the residents and fellows nowadays, as you know, are so smart. I mean, there. I, I don't know that I would have matched in orthopedics these days, but um, no, that's not true. But that's okay. Well, no, uh, come on, you're you're a smart one. We know that. We're going to go through your whole list of all the stuff you're doing. So I would take you in my program. Well, thanks, I appreciate it. But I mean, they keep they keep me on my toes. I mean, they they question what we do. They're constantly looking for better ways to do things, and watching them grow and progress is just really a, a pleasure. Well, it's really cool to be able to be recognized in the entire continuum of orthopedic of the orthopedic world, right? So you, you you've been you know pulled aside as someone that really cares about your residents. Uh, you're you're doing all kinds of great stuff within research and, and academies and, and societies as well. So you're 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 recognized up and down the ladder. So good for you. I think that's fantastic. You know, I I always joked around. It's like I love teaching. I've been always still involved in professional education, but I've always wanted to operate on my own patients. So you got to have nerves of steel, right, to be able to have the confidence in educating and being able to allow uh, the residents and fellows to be able to train. They have to be able to to learn how to operate to be able to do this. Are you? Are you involved with uh, Danny Goyle's project as well, Precision OS? So Precision OS is interesting. You know, there's a um, company, Parvizi Surgical Innovation, that um, I'm a part of, along with Jay Parvizi, who I think you're you're bringing on the show at some point. But they just partnered with uh, with Danny's company. So you know, I'm interested in in using it and te- testing out the technology. But that whole idea of of more virtual education is great, especially we've learned that in the COVID time that it's really necessary. I mean, I think one of the huge challenges for residents and fellows is how much do you let them do in the operating room? You know, and it's 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 a tough thing. You know, personally, I don't I don't believe in ghost surgery where you're eating, uh, drinking coffee and having having donuts while the resident is figuring it out in the operating room. You know, but I do think that education happens by having instruments in your hand and learning how to use them. And so I'm always there. I'm watching. I'm making sure that they do it the way that I want them to do it. But but I do let them do things. No, you should. I mean, that's great. And as they become more and more trained and then you allow them to do you know, more and more portions of the operation. You know, it's funny. I'm an old man and uh, we didn't have any of that stuff. I mean, we barely even had cadaver labs. I mean, prior to the Precision OS, you know, really the cadaver labs have been a, a real mainstay of being able to teach these techniques and getting some reps, if you will, you know, before you get into the live patient. So, you know, it's just, this is just one more really impressive, amazing way that you can incorporate all of that so that, uh, you know, these, these young 
orthopedic surgeons rising uh, uh, to become great will have an opportunity to be educated for sure. I think that it's, uh, it has to be an extreme challenge right now for you to decide how you're going to figure out who you're even taking in these residencies, right? There's no sub eyes. These kids can't come from medical school and spend time with you. I mean, you're basically, what are you taking? The parents' recommendations in the APGARs? I mean, how are you going to figure this out? I walk you through. Yeah, I mean, it's really tough. I mean, I think we, we end up this year probably um, ranking the students that we know personally, you know, at our own institutions uh, higher. And I think that's just a function of knowing what you're getting. Um, I think it's much harder to evaluate people who you only meet virtually for 10 or 15 minutes and you're you're relying on factors that, that you may not totally understand. So I think I think for us, it's been challenging this year. We did it for fellowship last year. We're doing it for our residency interviews. We did it for our residency interviews this year. And so we, we I mean, you have to trust your partners and the people that you, you respect around the country to give you honest interpretations of people and not just say everybody's the best thing ever. I mean, yeah. another thing, you're, you're not an old man if you can grow a fro like that. <laughs> well, yeah, I definitely know for the hair, that's for sure. And I appreciate that. But uh, I might actually have to get another fro reduction to get a little longer. But uh, no, that's very funny. But uh, yeah, you know, it's it's you really have to rely on on the recommendations of these people, especially for the fellows. It's a little easier, right? They've been through a residency. We all know everybody across the country you can pick up the phone and say, yeah, this is a good one. You know, surrender, take this guy is going to be good. You know, but it's for those medical students that, you know, the only place they're getting their their local orthopedic training. And then for some of the medical students, they don't even have orthopedic departments for them to really get the training. So it's a real challenge for them over last year and this year. But hopefully it will. Once this vaccine rolls out, this will be the last of that difficult part. Maybe people will be able to start traveling again. We kind of know some people look better on paper than they do in person. So this whole thing may benefit some students more than others. You know, some some people are just better off not interviewing personally. So, you know, we'll see what happens. It'll be very interesting. So Rod Navarro tells a great story about J.P. Water, like how they were deciding what what fellows they were going to take in Pittsburgh. And J.P. was like, well, this guy went to Harvard and this guy went to HSS. You know, they already think they know everything. The only reason we took you, Ron, was because we know you don't know everything. <laughs> <laughs> oh, all right. So one of my other things that's near and dear to my heart, as we all know, is opioid sparing. I, you know, it's a, a real passion for me, and I'm super happy to hear that Rothman is taking a real lead on this. You guys, uh, you know, have set up the, the Rothman Opioid Foundation. Tell us a little bit about that. I know the listeners would really be happy to hear about it. Yeah, I mean, this was basically Asafilius's brainchild, who's one of our spectacular hand surgeons um, at Rothman. But it's been supported by, you know, all the partners at the at the Rothman Institute. There's a board. Asif runs the program. Basically, the idea is to promote um, opioid reduction in any way that we can. And so there's a research arm to this. There's a, a marketing and patient education arm to this. And then um, they're actually starting their own po podcast called Pain Demonium, which I'm sure you'll be a part of. So, um, you know, it's been it's been probably six months now that um, this has been active and we're hoping to make it self-sustaining. So with uh, funding coming in from from industry and donors and then uh, kind of wise use of that money, uh, the hope is that we can kind of continue to spread the gospel that you spread yourself on um, how important it is for us to really try to reduce opioid usage and find alternative strategies for pain management. Yeah, fantastic. I mean, so much of what we were doing 
you know, in, in our earliest days was all just experience based, right? It was passed down from your attending down to the, to the fellow, to the chief resident. Everybody's like, oh, write for 60 pills. We don't want to get phone calls. But now to sort of move into an evidence-based world in which a foundation like this, I'm sure you'll be doing research where you're going to be able to generate papers that are really demonstrating the efficacy of this and also potentially hoping to find new opioid alternatives as we move forwards as well. And, and most importantly, just educating from the ground up that these you know, medical students, residents, and fellows recognize the importance of, uh, of trying to avoid opioids at all costs. So that's great news and super happy that, that Asif and you have started that. We're going to have Asif on the program too. One of my favorite, you know, I always quote his study, his carpal tunnel study about, you know, well, just having the conversation about opioids, he reduced opioids okay. by 30%. Yeah. So it's just, uh, it'll be awesome to have him on as well. All right, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but there is there is one little thing I don't ever usually bring up, you know, hot topics, if you will. But you know, with Sethi, we had Paul on, and we talked about his, you know, his study, and we know you had your study in JBJS as well. Uh, and basically, it was a it was a, a, a local infiltration study using uh, a scaling block with or without local infiltration, and the results of the two studies were just dramatically different. And, you know, I just, I guess it's, I'm curious because early on with Xborel, you know, and I know you've made a transition. I'd like to talk about that too. You know, it was always, does it work? Does it not work? And there were two camps. It was like, it was just so amazing the differences in the people's opinions one way or the other. And one of the things that we did, we recognized was that there wasn't a lot of education on the technique of how it's used and how it should be spread and the mixtures and all of that. And then I got involved in a surgery advisory board for the ACL in particular. We developed a very cookie cutter program that really showed people exactly how to do the local infiltration. And we felt with the basis of the neuroanatomy that we got it down pretty good. But I'm assuming that, that you guys decided to do this, your study in, in, a, in a fashion where you did not want to contact the manufacturer. You were going to do it in, in the way in which that was best for you guys in the program that you wanted to. But just tell us a little bit about that and how that evolved. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, the uh, when you think about studies that are performed, I think it's always important to understand the investigator's bias. You know, because anytime we ask study questions, we have our own ideas of what, you know, you want it to show. And so my bias starting out with the initial expert study, which was when we we took a group of patients undergoing total shoulder arthroplasty and we randomized them to either injecting into the soft tissues with expert at the end of the case or doing an interscaling block uh, before the case. And my bias was that I hated nerve blocks. Um, I wanted Experl to work for this reason. And, you know, the reason I didn't like nerve blocks was because you couldn't get a good exam postoperatively. Um, the patients had rebound pain. So at, you know, anywhere from six to 16 hours after surgery, they would have this horrible spike in pain from zero out of 10 pain to eight out of 10 pain. And then they'd use all this opioid and narcotic and be miserable and scared to go home. And so, you know, in, in that study, we found that overall the patients, they, their narcotic usage was was similar, um, but the Exprel group didn't experience rebound pain. They just had a baseline kind of similar pain score between three and four out of 10. And the interscaling group experienced rebound pain, but their initial pain scores were lower. So then, you know, we thought to ourselves, maybe if we combine Exprel with a nerve block, we can both get rid of that early pain that the Exprel patients had and avoid the rebound pain that the nerve block patients had. So then we did a second study where we randomized patients to nerve block alone versus nerve block plus Experil. And in that study, we found that there really wasn't a difference um, in their pain scores. 
And um, the expert group ended up using more narcotics. Now, it's an interesting finding. It, it tells it told me that in conjunction with a neuroblock, Exfril didn't seem to have a lot of value. Um, why they had higher pain scores, I don't know. I'm not sure that's something to really, you know, stick to or something to worry about. That could be an issue of fragility. You know, studies, if you have, you know, we think about study power, which is, you know, how many patients you have in the study. And if you show a negative result, then, you know, it might not be a true negative result if you don't have enough patients. But then there's also fragility, which means that, you know, if you if you change one or two patients in each group, you might dramatically change your results. And so I think that's true if you have a, a study without a lot of patients and you have some outliers. So that may explain why we saw higher um, opioid usage in the Exfril group. But I think so since that study, we, we stopped using Exfril as an infiltrate. And um, we've actually started to use it uh, in the interscaling block. And so we haven't studied it formally, but anecdotally, I've been happy with it. Um, I think that the rebound pain that I was seeing with a standard interscaling block at 6 to 16 hours uh, doesn't happen as frequently. Their block is extended. And so, you know, we think about it like falling off a cliff at 6 to 16 hours, they fall off this cliff. But now they fall off of it at maybe uh, 72 hours or 48 hours. And so the cliff isn't quite as high. And so they don't they don't really experience that rise in pain that they used to. So I've been happy with it as a block. Um, personally, it hasn't worked for me as an injectable. Yeah, so it's interesting. So April of 2018, it became on-label use for Expel to be used for the scaling block. And we've made that transition as well. And I think you said it beautifully. I think it's almost, it provides a soft landing, you know, off that cliff, if you will. Uh, I, I find it you know, fascinating that that you've switched back to blocks. And that was one of the reasons that you were looking to do Expo was to get away from blocks, but, but now you're using it. And, and, you know, what we found, I don't do a shoulder replacement. I do primarily instability and, and rotator cuffs, but we're near opioid free now with that Expo scaling block and we count every pill. Uh, and I think it has been a great addition. I think, you know, look, the concept, I had a, a patient go for a second opinion uh, and basically they had talked about, you know, doing nerve block and the, and the, the doctor said, well, we don't do that nerve block. Cause I want to know that you're having the appropriate amount of pain. And I also want to know to make sure you're not having a neurologic complication. The patient came back to me and said, doc, I'd really rather not be in pain. <laughs> I, said, I agree with you wholeheartedly. We're going to do the nerve block for you, but it's amazing still that, you know, positions out there as things change and innovate, right? People a lot of times are very slow to, to transition to something new and different. Uh, we hear that all the time on the Ortho Show as we have great innovators that are always coming up with new and great ideas. But look, we're really happy to hear that you're, you're using the, the, uh, the blocks and you're seeing good results with it. Thrilled about the Opioid Foundation for Rothman. Kudos to all of you guys doing an amazing job. I want to sort of pivot a little bit now. We'll talk a little bit about research because you uh, you're doing a great job. I mean, you're you're pumping out the papers. You're really putting out some really important work. And there's two studies that I thought I'd bring up if that's okay, and we could just discuss sure. those. So the I'm a big you know we talked about if you, anybody that's listened to me on the show knows that my arthroscopic Latterjay experience and we've talked about that multiple times. And you have a an interesting paper which is great. It's a Latterjay paper talking about complications at a single institution for ten years. Just give us an update as to what was going on there and what you guys found because I, I thought that was a really good paper. Yeah, I mean, you know, part of the reason why we wanted to do this study is because, you know, there's a huge push to to do ladder J for, you know, primary instability now, especially coming out of Europe. And so there have been some recent studies that have been published that 
show that you're almost doing the wrong thing if you do an arthroscopic bank heart repair for some of these patients. You know, the the re- recurrent instability rate after arthroscopic bank heart, I don't know what you tell your patients. I tell my patients about 15%. Um, but, you know, the recurrent instability rate after ladder J is less than 5%. So obviously, if you do a study comparing those two, arthroscopic bank heart will, will lose every single time. Uh, but the problem is a lot of those studies have not really dug deep into the complications that can happen from a from a ladder J um, compared to bank heart. And so the complication that you see from a bank heart repair is most commonly recurrent instability. The complications that you could see from a ladder J are can be catastrophic. I mean, nerve injury, um, graft non-union, you know, infection, th- those can be really, really problematic. And so we wanted to see what our early complication rate was. And this was only at 90 days. And the complication rate is not insignificant. I mean, it's somewhere hovering around 8 to 10%. Um, graft failure and nerve injury are happen. You know, it's not that they're never events like you'll hear from some people. And sometimes they can be permanent. We actually have a fellow who's coming next year um, to join us. He, When he was a, a medical student, he had a um, ladder J procedure and he had a permanent musculocutaneous nerve palsy. And then he had to have multiple tendon transfers, nerve surgery, and now he can he can flex and, and, and he's doing OK. But but these are real problems that happen. And so we found, you know, that nerve injury happens. Um, oftentimes it resolves, but it can be permanent. And then if you look at our graft positioning, um, that can be somewhat variable. Um, the, our screw fixation is important. So if you're using screws, a single screw is really not sufficient. You should be using multiple screws. Um, and, you know, personally, I use threat, I use, uh, uh, solid stainless steel screws. I think we've had some issues with the titanium screws, but we weren't probably powered to, to evaluate that. And is this, uh, was this all open? Was there any arthroscopic being done at Rothman as well? Uh, Charlie gets, uh, is one of my partners. He does, he does some arthroscopic, but the vast majority of these were, were open. So, uh, maybe about 10 were arthroscopic, but the vast majority were open. Yeah, it's interesting. And so maybe the middle ground may be here. I don't know if you listened to the Ivan Wag episode, but, you know, Ivan's now doing his anterior glenoid reconstruction using the distal tibial um, uh, allograft. And so there's really no movement of nerves and things. And uh, it may be sort of that common ground where we can eliminate the complications associated with the open ladder J, but still create great stability that the arthroscopic bank card is missing. And so I think at the end of the day, we really have not completely figured out shoulder instability. It's a difficult joint, uh, but we're working hard at it. We've got some great people that are thinking about, you know, great new ways to do it. So uh, it's really great that you were able to put that study together. So thanks. The the other study I want to talk about, which is <laughs> like, I didn't even know this was the case, but I, you know, is your 3% hydrogen peroxide, your prospective randomized controlled trial, which is such an important thing in shoulder right now. It's like the hottest topic, but I didn't, it's like Prince. I didn't know that P acne's got, you know, changed its name to, to, uh, to C acne's at this point. I'm like, I didn't like who changes the name of a bacteria like midstream. Like you can maybe tell us about that, but you know, I, I always think of P acne's and I saw the study. It was cutabacterium acne's. I'm like, is that a new one? I'm like, no, no, they just renamed it. I had to Google it. And anyway, but you know, tell us about that because that's one of these little hidden things that we're all struggling with, with, you know, shoulder replacements or SCRs or, you know, ladder J's, all these things where we get the skin infection. So walk us through that. Yeah. I mean, this is probably my favorite topic in, in shoulder research is, in, is infection because it's such a black box. I mean, you know, we, 
we know that the most common bacteria that's cultured in cases of failed shoulder surgery, whether it's arthroplasty, ladder J, whatever, is C. acnes or P. acnes. And the infectious disease epidemiologists have changed the name and, and you know, go, go figure why, but there's a whole family of these bacteria. And so, so we know that that's the most commonly cultured organism. And so on its surface, that seems really concerning and something that we should try to uh, completely eradicate and really search for. Uh, but the problem is that if you also culture primary shoulder cases, whether they're arthro arthroscopic or, or um, open, there's a very high rate of deep positive cultures for C. acnes. So then the question becomes, is it real? Is it, is, it a, is it a deep tissue inoculant or contaminant, or is it actually a source of infection? And it's probably both. It can, it can, in some cases, it causes true infection. And in other cases, it's just kind of a red herring. It's there, but it's not clinically relevant. And so I think that's part of the challenge. It's a total black box. We don't really understand it very well. And so, you know, at this stage, we know that in some cases it can be a huge problem. And so uh, if we can eliminate it or at least reduce the positive, you know, the, the culture rates of it, potentially we can avoid some of those serious infections. But it's important that we don't change the microbiome of the shoulder when we're doing that. You know, there are bacteria that live in the shoulder, live on the shoulder that are important. They help to fight disease in a lot of ways, and they prevent the overgrowth of other bacteria. And so if we do dramatic things like give patients high-dose antibiotics or infiltrate their wounds with antibiotics, then potentially we change the bacteria and we can get all these resistant organisms. And so doing things like hydrogen peroxide, which is uh, more of a solution that, that kills the bacteria as opposed to allowing them to mutate, you know, may have value. And so in our study, we showed that if we very simply, we change our skin prep so that we do our chlorhexidine scrub and then we do hydrogen peroxide over it. And then we do our chloroprep sticks that we reduce the positive culture rate by 50%. And so, you know, that's a very easy thing to do. It's very cheap. There's no increase in skin reactions and maybe it helps. So I think it's, it's something that's changed in our practice. We now use it routinely. Um, we don't do uh, benzoyl peroxide like Paul, Paul Sethi has, has shown us is, is good, but it requires patient compliance. And, and, and so it adds a layer of complexity. But, but I do think it, it pro hydrogen peroxide probably does have value. Uh, but still, we don't really understand the C-acnes issue very well. All right. So, Mom, if you're listening, I'd like to always sort of explain things a little bit so people understand at the at the at all levels. But so there's this bacteria that hangs out in the skin on your like on your hair follicles. So it's normal. It's there all the time. But for some reason, sometimes it gets into the shoulder, especially when you do the surgery and you can get these chronic infections, whether they're, they're real or not. But the bottom line is using your good old fashioned hydrogen peroxide, which is literally in your medicine cabinet. You can wipe that on the skin and help to reduce the potential chance for infection. So. Go, great, great study. I'm clearly going to take that with me at the end of the show and start adding that into my uh, to my normal regimen. So thank you for that study as well. All right, so we're going to segue into one more thing, and I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna bust on you here a little bit, only in a, in a very good way. So it's, it's like you know, I look at your career. You're like in, the, in an orthopedic career. You know, you're nine or ten years in. Like like literally, you're like you're just getting bar mitzvah. You know, in your orthopedic career, you've got this long way to go, but yeah. <laughs> Dude, you've got a book. I mean, like literally you have, you have a textbook. I mean, this is not like a little book that's on Amazon of your life or something or some cool story. But literally, it's not like a chapter. I'm like, you are like the lead author of this book. It's the Foundations of Shoulder and Elbow Surgery. 
So you got to talk to us about how that came about. I mean, that's a big deal. I want to hear it. You know, I, I've been lucky my, my, as my career has gone and gone on. I've had great mentors. So even starting in medical school, I had such great people that, that, um, that I could look up to. And, you know, I think it's so important when you, when you, when you see people in orthopedics, you kind of look at them when you're, when you're a young guy or a girl and, and you say to yourself, can I be like this person later on? Can I see my life kind of following this person's life? Would I like to be like this person when I'm 20 years in? And I've had, I saw a lot of people who I looked at and I said, God, there's great. And I would look at their careers and I'd say, wow, they published so many papers. They've made such an impact. They wrote a book. And I said to myself, you know, I'd like to do that one day. And so as time's gone, as time has gone on, if opportunities arose, I've tried to take them. And so this opportunity arose to, to, to do a book. And it actually, you know, one of our residents, uh, Ben Zimistowski, was really, really interested in doing it with me. And Reza Omid, who's a shoulder surgeon at, in, uh, at USC, was very interested in doing it with me. And so it was a great experience. You know, we, um, we got great authors. Um, the editing is the hard part, but really the authors do the heavy lifting. Um, I had some experience because there's a textbook called Orthopedic Secrets that um, is used for medical students, and they uh, needed a new edition, and so I helped with that as a resident. So, so I got a, I got some experience with the with the publishing world, and then we put this book together, and and so far it's been, it's been great. I mean, you know, I think it's a good resource. Our goal was to tra- to to kind of write it for either medical students, residents, or early career uh, surgeons who, who want to do some shoulder surgery. Uh, but, you know, it's one of those things where we're all so busy. When do you do this stuff? You know, I, I do it at night. I don't sleep very much. So, you know, that's kind of the way my life goes. I have two small kids. So when they're, when they're in bed, um, dad does some work and occasionally drinks a glass of scotch. So that, that's the way it works. Oh, that sounds perfect. Did you have the publishing deal set up before? You must have. You weren't going to take on the endeavor of a book without having to know there was going to be a solution at the end. Yeah, absolutely. You know, we had the deal set up with the publisher prior to starting everything. And then they they, they were very helpful. I mean, they helped us coordinate uh, with the authors, getting the chapters in, getting everything proofed. Um, so, you know, I think it's a great opportunity for anybody who's listening, you know, honestly, anybody can write a book. So if you have a, if you have an idea that, that you think is worthwhile, um, uh, it's, it's as easy as pitching it to a publisher or several publishers. And, and, you know, if it's, if it has legs and you get the right people involved with you, um, it's an, it's something that you can accomplish. Yeah. Fantastic stuff, Sarit. I mean, you know, I look at all the stuff that you're doing, you know, we're, we're so proud of, of you and all the accomplishments you've had in this stage of your career, you know, keep rising, keep educating, keep doing the research, keep writing, have a glass of scotch, do all that stuff that you're doing because uh, you're really doing a great job and we can't thank you enough for taking your time to tell your story. Scott, thanks so much for having me. This is such a great podcast, and I think it's the preeminent podcast in orthopedics. So, you know, I think it'll just continue to grow, and I'm so honored that that you even thought about me. I, I feel like it was a mistake, but, hey, I'm capitalizing on it. <laughs> oh, the best of the best in the orthopedic space, and Dr. Namdari is no exception to that rule. This is Dr. Scott Sigmund, hashtag follow the fro, host of the Ortho Show. Till next time.